and welcome to the latest episode of the Autocar Business Changemakers podcast in association with Tomorrow's Journey. This is episode 10. I'm joined as ever by Chris Kirby, CEO of Tomorrow's Journey. And joining us for the last episode in the series is Connor Horn, who is director of the UK for Lotus Cars. Thank you very much for coming in. How are you? I'm very well, very well. And Ireland, not to forget Ireland. I've got to remember my roots. Uh, I'm very well. Uh, thanks for hosting me today. No problem at all. This uh, this feels like a bit of a moment, doesn't it, for the last episode, having an OEM yes. come in to give the perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess especially with the exciting journey that uh, Lotus is, is on and starting and, and I guess heading towards. Probably before we get into that, though, Connor, you've been in the automotive industry for a, a while, so be good for our listeners just to hear a little bit about your your background and kind of some of your, your area of expertise before we dive yeah sure it. so i actually uh, trained to be uh, an accountant and uh, very quickly realized that the last thing i wanted to be in life was an accountant <laughs> so i uh, i did a, a placement year whilst i was at university um with a a large volume manufacturer based out of luton naming their names <laughs> and uh and what that did was really kind of like as a as an absolute the petrol head that i am showed me that I wanted to get into uh, into the automotive industry, um, and since then never looked back. So, worked for several large OEMs in the in the UK now, all at manufacturer level, um, ranging from your volume brands to your premium brands, and now Lotus, obviously working uh, and leading within a a, a large luxury brand. And um, and I suppose within my career, I've I think probably the the last three, four years have been the the most varied in terms of, uh, and, and challenging to a degree as well, because I've moved away from the comfort zone that is the wholesale business model, and then led now in the in the direct consumer and agency uh, business model, which is, obviously doesn't come without its challenges. Um, but yeah, that's been quite a, quite a change. That's really interesting. I want to talk a little bit about Lotus's journey uh, in a second, if we can, but why is the wholesale model the comfort zone for you? I think it's, it's because it's what we've 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 always known in the automotive industry. So it's um, it, right right down to the the the, the retailer network uh, that exists with with all manufacturers. Um, everyone knows exactly what is required of them. They know their jobs and their roles and their responsibilities. Um, so right down to a sales consultant at the coal face selling to a customer, they know exactly what they need to do. They know that there's the, the drama and the theatre of selling a car and going into the sales manager, coming back, that old discounting journey, etc. cetera. Uh, and customers know it as well. Um, that they, they, they kind of expect to come in, and we know this through both quantitative and qualitative data, that they come into a retailer and to a dealership knowing that there's a deal generally to be had. Um, and uh, right the way up to investor level. I think everyone knows that that's the kind of, that that's the way in which uh, retailers operate and manufacturers for time and time gone by have been quite comfortable with that because obviously as soon as the car rolls off the production line, very shortly after you wholesale it to a retailer. And whilst that's not job done necessarily, there is obviously, you wanna make sure that the, the funnel is fed with, with demand uh, for your product. But financially, the car has now left your balance sheet and now sits somewhere else. So. That's kind of been the, the the norm, I would say. That's why it's the, the comfort zone. Um, and then agency now is is really coming to life. For me, I think one of the biggest benefits of, of agency is is to truly embrace online sales, which I know we'll come on to. Um, you, you, you have to harmonize the price and be able to uh, guarantee that that online price is the same as what you would get offline and uh, and we know again from, from all the research that we've done over the years um, 
uh, that there's also out there that's been conducted by other research parties that um, the, the the online price is always seen as the starting price to take offline and, and haggle to get that that better deal. So with obviously growing um, online sales now across all retail industries, not just automotive, um, the automotive industry is lagged behind, and that's the reason for it. So to truly embrace it, we need to harmonise that that price. Yeah, it's, it's definitely fascinating. I think people are always surprised when you think about a move to online sales. You think, oh, it's just like moving any retail business from an offline to an online model. But all of that complexity that you like really succinctly described is what I, I often try and say to people: that, you know, that wholesaling model, uh, having people at the coalface selling who aren't employees of because when somebody buys a car, they buy a car from the brand, so yeah. they. Just go, oh, well, I bought a car from Audi. You know, but you didn't. You bought a car from a franchise dealer, which is a completely different company. Your whole set when you explain and you financed it with a different company. That's, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like oh, it's really complicated. But in the customer's mind, it's just the the single brand. So it seems easy to move it online, but actually super complicated. It's also a skill set thing. Someone said to me, and it was a real penny drop moment when they said, "Well, OEMs don't have the skills to." to sell because yeah. they've been there to be like brand and I wholesale agree, companies. I agree. Yeah, yeah. So I think a, and it's not a bad thing. It's just it's a difference that the yeah. people that work there aren't yeah. Yeah. designed to sell and retail. They're designed to brand build and push through that that model. So yeah. it's not an easy shift either just to go, well, let's just get a nice online journey. And, oh, and right. And I couldn't agree more. I think this is where it's important to have that that retail experience under your belt as well and certainly have that within your 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 teams mm. so that you understand what the roles and those true responsibilities that the retailers did because mm. in your ivory towers it's very it's very easy as i said in the wholesale business model just to underestimate all the work that the retailer network do do um and when you move to agency a lot of those roles and responsibilities and then shift to the manufacturer. So you need to be fully aware of what they are to be able to then take them uh, um, on board and, and to take that role of a retainer ultimately. Mm, yeah, absolutely, so yeah. um, it's, no, it's no small change. Yeah, and there's bits that you can streamline in the process because I think you know, there is a lot of friction in buying a car through the wholesale retailer model, but there, there is a big chunk of that. There's some, some stuff you could strip out, but as you said, there's a big chunk of it that has to move in responsibility and, and it's a thing that is... Um, yeah, not always known to uh, people at the OEM side. It's you know, it goes to the dealer and they do some stuff and the car gets up. And it's uh, <laughs> it's slightly complex. So yeah, definitely uh, definitely an interesting. Well, maybe we'll get back to to that a bit um, later on as well. But do you want to start to touch on a little bit about Lotus? Really well, yeah, I mean this is the, the this is really interesting to hear this because we we know a lot about Lotus's journey. Uh, I think a couple of years ago we had the the big Vision eighty uh, strategy presentation, electrification. Uh, you know, moving away from being a maker of artisan sports cars to 150,000 cars a year, which are, are numbers people don't associate with, with the Lotus brand. They will come to, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's that changing retail approach that I don't think has uh, has made the headlines, as it were. I don't think people are necessarily clicking for that. So, how do you take a brand that's got such an intimate connection with its clients that you know maybe they know the name of everyone who bought an Elise last year, for example? to that scale to to such wildly different products yeah you're obviously right and i think the with i've never been exposed with any of the brands that i've worked with previously um to the level of conquest that we're going to have to drive to new fresh customers that have never bought or never sat in a lotus in their life before uh and i think for me there's kind of like it's it's there's two steps here i think we need to we mustn't forget 
all the customers that we do know on a first name basis and we have to bring them with us on their journey because they've been very loyal to us um and we need to we need to respect that we need to as i said we need to bring them with us um but we do have a huge job to do in if, if we're going to reach that one hundred and fifty thousand global sales figure we can only do that through bringing new um conquest business into the into, into the brand so we need to First of all, we need to make sure that we've got the right skill sets within the within the the, the manufacturer ourselves. So, uh, and what, by that I mean that we have lots of experience across not only automotive industry, but if we just look at the automotive industry, um, best practices that exist with with all those other large OEMs. Hence, why I'm now leading the the UK because I have that wealth of experience in in, in my back pocket. And if I look at my my management team, it's exactly the same. Just there last night, I was creating a slide of all the brands that everyone's worked for, and um, that we've got ten plus brands uh, within that of experience within just my my management team, and that filters right the way through. So bringing all of that with us is to kind of okay, well, how do our competitors um, achieve their annual sales volumes? What what are their business plans? How do they get there? That's that's something that we now need to kind of implement implement now very quickly into the round and we can only do that with the experience as I say that's coming through and you look at our our, our vice president um, Mike Johnson he's he, he's another example of that his wealth of, of experience coming from several different very large global aut- automotive um, uh, brands that that kind of that sets us up nicely so um, and then we have to think very differently as to how we do it because it's not just good enough to be to, to replicate what our competitors do. Yes, we have an incredible product um, and we need to fully kind of utilize some of the first mover advantage that we have with the first um, hyper SUV, um, full electric vehicle within the electric. So use that to our full advantage. But also we need to disrupt and we need to look at things slightly differently. We can use the fact that we are a smaller business. We can look at the fact that we are uh, a 0.1% market share brand at the moment and we don't have... 30 different levels of approval to go through to, to to make something happen. We can react quite quickly and we can set up uh, our, our business <clears throat> accordingly with that kind of think fast mentality. So that's what we're doing. You look at the business model we've chosen uh, to operate within the UK with, with agency, um, on our network of retailers, how we sell, where we sell. Um, we've got a state-of-the-art flagship um, showroom in the heart of central London on Piccadilly, opposite the Ritz. I mean, we're, we're, we're doing things slightly differently as to, 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 to the norm because we can and we need to. And we need to, as I said, replicate, but also do things uh, slightly differently and, and to, to truly disrupt, to drive all that conquest business um, to the brand. What, what strikes me compared to some of the other guests we've had on this on this programme they sort of operate behind the scenes in a way, and it's the end user that benefits, uh, but they don't necessarily know everything that goes on uh, leading up to that. But you seem to have a much more customer-facing role in the sense that you know all eyes are on you in a way. All eyes are on what Lotus is, what's changing at Lotus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, feel the, you must feel the pressure. <laughs> it's, it's funny because I, I can honestly say, and the last time I spoke to a customer on the phone was when I was on the shop floor at the coalface, so some almost two decades ago and and I've spoken to 20 30 probably plus customers in the short period of time that I've been with the brand so it does been right kind of yeah. you say kind of like at speaking directly and being very customer centric and uh, and and very much kind of like 
with the customer in this journey. Um, already I've kind of uh, seen that firsthand uh, and we need to, because as I said, customers who are spending north of £100,000 on a car expect the very best experience. And uh, and right now we obviously are, we, we, we will have teething issues as you would expect going through the, the growth journey that the brand is on. So we need to ensure that we work with our customers through that, um, through that process. Have we got it right currently? No, absolutely not. Has any manufacturer, especially operating the agency uh, framework, got it completely, absolutely right? No. Um, so we need to, as I said, use that kind of that nimble um, approach that we can do so from being smaller to our full advantage to um, to work with our customers to, to grow the brand successfully. Mm. And do you think I was good, kind of alluding to a bit of the question I was thinking about as you were kind of going through explaining that the journey really is about the, the advantage that you have where we talked at the start about you know, the changing skill sets in organisations because you're smaller but have your big kind of growth ambition does that starting position maybe give you an advantage over some of the competitors? As in, if you're selling a couple of hundred thousand vehicles today through a massive retailer network and you want to move to agency, it's tricky. Yeah. If you're going from small to big and you want to make that change, does it present big opportunities? Is it a bit of a balance of both? Kind of, How do you see yeah, that? It, yeah. It, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, I think if, if, if you'd have given me the role to lead a business that already was doing 150,000 cars globally, I would say that's an easier gig. Growing from the start up um, is is definitely harder. Doesn't mean, as I said, that we can um, we can be quite creative in how we're going to get there. Absolutely. So when we talk about operating a new business, well, obviously in my previous role, I was responsible for transforming a very large premium OEM mm. to agency in the UK. And uh, and that was a huge job because you had that legacy there already. So to your point, it was much harder to transition to a new business model. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, it's very e- it's it's much easier to to build that foundation up when you don't have that legacy there or it's not as prominent. Um, but is it does it does it make the, the task to grow to 150,000 cars that yeah. no, no, definitely no, 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 no. Yeah, it's probably a bit of a 50-50 or probably not in that proportions, but there's a, there's lots yeah. of advantages, but also you've got all of the challenges of, okay, if you've got a strong retailer network behind you who's been used to you know, selling that number of vehicles, then that is as an advantage, I guess, on the on the other side. So, yeah, so absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that starting point for me, I think probably one of the, the, the things that requires our, our the majority of our attention currently is our system infrastructure mm-hmm. and I think that obviously you take that for granted mm-hmm. when you work uh, at any established brand not even automotive any established brand that you walk in and uh, and, and you, you have those processes you have those systems already there so you just kind of you can you can obviously improve them but they're, they're there already and they exist already to improve um, and to tweak Whereas when you're when you're kind of when you're coming from quite literally the the point that we are to the, our growth ambitions, you you are largely kind of almost operating with a startup mentality, the, a blank sheet of paper, mm. and and that that for me is probably the the the, the biggest learning curve since I've joined. In, in that you do truly take those processes and systems for granted mm-hmm. that that just aren't there, and you need to build them yeah. up from up from scratch. So. 
Yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it's definitely interesting. I'm also interested in the in the product. So I think we talk, talked about maybe we'll come back to, to business models, but tell us a bit more about kind of the, the product roadmap or at least the bits that you, you can tell us about. Because I think you were saying you're the first brand to be fully fully electric within... Yeah, like by 2028. 20, so um, we, we are truly committed as a brand to, um, to, to, to the full transition to EV. Mm-hmm. So by 2028, we'll only offer an EV product lineup. Mm-hmm. Um, in recent years, we've seen ourselves for the first time in a 75-year uh, history of the brand um, move away from producing just an out-and-out white sports car. Um, the Amira is the last hurrah of the kind of traditional combustion engine sports cars. <clears throat> uh, what a great last hurrah that is. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, and now we move into some of the, 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 the more mainstream um, uh, uh, channels that you would expect your large OEMs to, to be in. And ultimately, that's the only way in which you're going you're gonna to generate the level of sales volume that we need to, to get to that 150,000. So um, Electra was the first product that, we, that was saw us move away from that traditional sports car only product portfolio. Um, so it's a hyper SUV, um, a phenomenal car. I mean, yeah, it looks amazing. It looks amazing. The, I mean, the stats are like there's, 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 for me, what I think I'm most intrigued with that car is that there's so many different reasons as to why you would want to buy it. Mm. So it, it doesn't have kind of necessarily for the first time in my career, I'm, and even as a petrol head, I'm looking at a car that generally it's quite, it's quite obvious why you buy a car. Mm-hmm. Um, if I look at the cars I've owned in the past, it's very obvious why you buy, say, a small SUV diesel. Mm-hmm because you need something that's frugal and cost-effective to carry around your family. Yeah. And I look at the Electra, and you look at 905 brake horsepower, 0 to 60 in 2.9 seconds on one hand, and you've got a very um, a very um, strong 370-plus mile range mm. on, on the other, and then you've got this SUV on the other, and then you've got the technology in the car yeah. is just on a different level to anything I've ever been exposed of mm-hmm. um, but, but before. So you've kind of got these like this this plethora of, of reasons as to why you'd want to buy, which obviously makes your your marketing quite challenging because you're, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're trying to pinpoint. Those are different things for different people. Exactly, right? exactly. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and to be very transparent, that's exactly what we do. So we have one set of a campaign over here for customers that are looking at having uh, the bragging rights of having quite literally the fastest SUV on the market. Mm. You've got then here is someone that uh, a marketing campaign for somebody who's looking for an EV that has a strong. Uh, range that that can can re- uh, relieve some of that range anxiety that we know still exists within the within that that buying group SUV for customers who are looking for a, a, a family car. Um, so yeah, it's um, the, 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 there's lots of um, there's lots of different reasons, which is great. And then we move then to uh, a, a Maya, which comes out well has, has been has been officially launched uh, earlier on in September um, in in New York. A phenomenal car, much bigger in the flesh as well. That was the thing yeah. that kind of stood out for me. That when I saw it, I thought, "Wow, it's it's it is much larger." You can tell it's a Grand Tour, which yeah. obviously when you're looking at photos of cars, it's much harder yeah, to, sure. to kind of visualize. But Especially with EVs, because the proportion they don't have the same kind of must have an engine and a gearbox and a thing. Yeah, the proportions yeah, can yeah. be fit funny. Absolutely, yeah. but a phenomenal looking car. And for me, the rear end of that car is one of the best looking cars I've ever come across. And I'm saying that. You won't believe me, but I'm saying that with my legs. <laughs> take take the badge off for a second. I'm taking that gently. Yeah, yeah. It's is a phenomenal looking car, and then and then we move to um, the the by 
I say by 2028, some of these products will come sooner than that. Yep. But, a, but a small SUV um, and uh, and also then a full electric sports car as well. Yeah, so awesome. so the, 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 the product portfolio will grow quite quickly uh, and into some of the fastest growing um, segments within the market to then facilitate that, that growth ambition. Mm. So the products are, I mean, the electric sports car will probably be the most familiar uh, proposition to any traditional Lotus buyer, but the products are generally extremely different from anything else you've sold in your 75-year history. (laughs) How has the customer journey changed? If I was a Lotus customer today, how have the steps changed to you know buying a buying an Exige back in two thousand and six sort of thing? Yeah, that, that, well, you probably knew your sales consultant on a or, or, or your <laughs> the, whoever was selling you cars on a first name basis, and you'd bought off them for a million years. Um, and not only just the buying process, but also then from an after sales perspective, I, I'm I'm I, I was honestly just shocked by our part sales and the lack of servicing and actually the majority of our traditional customer base love to get the parts themselves buy the parts okay. and then do it themselves so there's the, i think it's not just even the buying process it's the whole customer journey of, of of owning a lotus and obviously that moves away because i would now be a a, a, a target mm-hmm. uh, consumer of 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 the lotus brand um, you can't uh, do a 120 kilowatt battery in the driveway. Exactly. So, and I wouldn't have the first clue as to what is on your rubber wellies. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> gonna have a don't, go. <laughs> don't, don't, don't come at me with that. So, um, so I think it, it's not just even the buying journey, but now the as well the the, the customers that we're looking to uh, attract. We have to look at the the, the wider uh, um, um, the wider kind of UK consumer target audiences. And for me, what's ringing in my head are all those different groups that I know that you've got kind of like the the 14% of consumers that now only want to buy online and they don't want to touch anyone. They couldn't think of anything worse than speaking to a human being. Yeah. And then you've got on the other end, the 10% of consumers that probably are closer to our traditional Lotus consumer base that couldn't think of anything worse than going online to buy a car. And certainly even just the buying journey. Like, I don't even want to watch a YouTube video. They yeah. they only want to buy from Greg at West London because Greg has sold them their 10 cars and I trust Greg's opinion more than anything. Yeah. And then where you see that the majority of consumers sit in the UK now, the 86% of consumers sit in that middle where like probably us and like most customers or most, most people listening to this, this podcast would, would, would see themselves that actually I'll do a bit of both. I'll, mm. I'll, I like to research online. I like to watch the YouTube videos. I like to read the reviews of, of a new product. Um, but I still want a test drive. I still want that physical touch point at some point mm-hmm. in the journey before mm-hmm. I commit. Yeah. Um, and that's still very important because, as I said, 86% of customers still want that that um, that, that, that physical touch point. Um, and, uh, I, 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 but then also kind of when they then go back online, they might not want to transact in the store. So they've seen it now, go home and then, and then buy online. So... Mm-hmm. Um, I've definitely just realised I've got my maths wrong there. 76 sit between that <laughs> middle, obviously. Uh, the, no, no, one che- no one checks your no, presences no, no, exactly. on this podcast. No, no, We're right. People take it I'm going to. No, sorry, 14% on one side, 10% on the other, 76% in the middle. Yeah. And obviously 76% grows to 86% when you include the, the yeah. 10% that still want that that offline only yeah, experience. Yeah. So 86% of consumers still want, want that. This, this, is your, uh, this is your inner accountant coming back out. <laughs> yeah, this is. 
listeners. 76% of all stats are 100% correct. Well, there we go. So suddenly find my motto. So for me, it's really important that, and and this is where I talk about agency and and really you need to to be a direct consumer brand to truly unlock the benefits that exist to capitalise on online sales. But it's not just about targeting that 14% of consumers that want to buy online and online only. Mm -hmm. It's about empowering all consumers, no matter what your preference or what your preference is, that if you want to, to do a test drive and a product demonstration in store, but that's the only part of the journey you want to do as a physical touch point. And actually you want to sit at home with your wife or your husband with a glass of wine and then go through the buying journey and configure your car and place that order mm. in your own time without the pressure of being in a sales in a, in a, in a sales environment. You could still do that mm-hmm. and not be penalised because the price is the same as if you'd have transacted in store. That for me is the most important aspect of of the agency business model. Um, so yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the thing that the percentages around the the kind of online sales stuff, I find really fascinating how it's progressing because I think they get presented in different ways depending on kind of where where you sit in that in that process. The dealers will say people want to buy in store and vice versa, and you can definitely see it transitioning over time. The thing you were saying about having a kind of in store test drive experience, I, I still feel like people want to touch and feel the car. They don't necessarily want a full sales demonstration because sometimes that can feel pressured or structured. I also think there's a bit where when people get, people just never bought a car online. So I still remember like really thing sticks in my mind. One of my friends was buying a used car, but he said about Kazoo. He said, of course, have you heard about Kazoo? I said, I've heard about Kazoo. He said, but they said, I could buy this car online. And the guy's the same ish age as me. I was like, yeah, you can do that. He goes, I don't know. How does that work? Do you just deliver it to my house, and then if I don't want it, I give it back. Like, yeah, yeah, it's fine. So, like, oh, right, okay. And I think when people have had like that one-time yeah, experience absolutely. of it, everyone's just like, "All oh, right, cool. This is this is fine." So there's a bit where I think quite a large percentage of that kind of middle chunk is still there, just going, "Well, I, I don't want to do it because it's not how I've done it before." No, no, so I think that's so there's a bit of a transition in like the next definitely. buying cycle could could change. And it's, not, it's not just automotive, although we saw the exact same. Um, oh, I'm just a conveyor belt of stats, by the way. Just yeah, excellent. Warning here <laughs> and we see that through now 76% of UK consumers have a preference to do the majority of their car buying journey online. Mm. So the I think where we um, where we traditionally have had a preference to do something offline, I'm talking outside of automotive in you look at the, the the national statistics for retail sales, we've gone from 19% pr- pr- prior to COVID to 27% mm. post-pandemic, where okay. now consumers have seen that actually, like for me personally, I uh, there was two things that I would only ever buy offline prior to the pandemic, which was clothes, because I always wanted to try them on. I just uh, anyone who says that it's it's easy to return clothes, it's, it's not. It's not. It's uh, not. And they end up just sitting in my wardrobe <laughs> waiting for the next person, the, the next like birthday or Christmas that I can give my hand me downs to because I can't be bothered to return. Definitely them. resonates with me. Uh, and, and then the other was uh, grocery shopping. I, I couldn't think of anything worse than than someone being the person responsible to pick my apples and my bananas because I know that they're going to choose that one that no one wants and mm-hmm. my bananas are going to arrive brown. And and the reality is that I was forced to do both of those throughout the pandemic mm-hmm. online. And post-pandemic, I look now and I see that actually, no, my, my fruit and groceries, when they got delivered to me, were fresher, too fresh, yeah, than, yeah. than, than yeah. if, if, if yeah. I'd picked them myself from the local supermarket. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's something now that I look at and think, well, I'm time poor, mm. so I'll continue doing that. So yeah, totally. continue buying online my groceries, but I've gone straight back to buying in-store for clothes because 
again, I just, I, I, it, it wasn't for me. And I think consumers have done that. We saw that over the pandemic, online sales for all industries and, and automotive included increased significantly. And then some people have, it's actually, wow, that, that was, that, that's to your point, Chris, it's like, that wasn't as scary as I thought it was going to be. I'm going to do that again. And then others were, oh, no, no, I didn't like that. My mum was in the same category as yeah. that. She needed to buy a car. I, I gave her the, the details to buy a car on online. Mm. She did it all. She was so uncomfortable. I had to handhold her the way through it. And she was like, that was unbelievable. Never have, have to, to go to a dealer again. They'd have to go out. Yeah, yeah. The most interesting is like the, the commodification of a car in a way. People are realising that a car is a product that slots into your life and, you know, you can choose your attributes that you want. But ultimately, you know, you wouldn't necessarily feel obligated to go and test out a phone before buying it if you knew that it did everything you needed it to do. And, you know, there's plenty of reviews out there, as you say. So maybe people are just getting more comfortable with the idea that, you know, they can trust the product if they're exposed to the brand already, maybe. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think the one exception... To, to, to that is is when it still comes down to EV product mm-hmm. that we still have um, whilst <clears throat> there are a lot of consumers in the market now that uh, have owned or are currently owning an EV so the next purchase will be less daunting mm-hmm. but there is still that that, that kind of it's, it is a big leap to, yeah. to, to leave behind what you've known for so long and your your true comfort zone of, of driving an internal combustion car to, mm-hmm. to those kind of um, anxiety around range or, or kind of will it I mean I, I, I one, one of the brands I worked for <clears throat> back in 2011 was the very first brand or one of I can't remember now whether they're the first or whether they're one of the first to launch uh, an, an EV product and I remember that those first early adopters of EV the, the questions we were getting through can I drive for a puddle in this car yeah, or will it fry yeah. me and and it, it's fascinating now to see where we've moved we still get them on Twitter don't worry <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> to see yeah. where we've moved from yeah, to yeah, now yeah. actually now now the um, now the, the, the questions are still there but they're different mm-hmm. and I think that that's still kind of the what we need to uh, I think customers still want to or consumers still want to touch and feel an EV product before they, before mm. they I think the EV things are also interesting we've talked about it a bit on the the podcast so far we had um, and I uh, on talking about the, some test drive stuff actually that, that we work with them on uh, because their primary motivation for that was saying they wanted to give customers the opportunity to experience EVs for longer because actually a lot of EVs EVs do drive differently I've, I've had a couple now but essentially an EV is kind of an EV the experience, there isn't a engine noise or you know the other yeah. emotive things that you'd get with with cars but the thing that you do particularly if you're transitioning to ev the thing you you need to understand is like kind of live with it and you can't get that in a one hour test drive driving it around the industrial no, estate no, and no, back no, so no. this is more like experiential type um type opportunities which i think is going to be interesting and i don't know if that's something that's part of your your plans at, at lotus or wanting to get people into vehicles kind of for longer as part of those experiences or is kind of ev transition not really feeling like your responsibility you want to get the the product to to people that are comfortable that they want to make the change it's, it's both it's yeah. both and we go back to those growth ambitions that the only way we can truly grow is through driving that conquest business and there will be different just like talk about different um different kind of uh, preferences in in their buying preferences of online mm. offline you've got exactly that the same kind of level of confidence in in transitioning to an ev 
And we need to ensure we support all consumers that are looking at a Lotus, whether or not you, you're on your, your fifth EV or this is the first EV that yeah. you're going to own, that we provide that confidence um, uh, around, our, around our product. I think one thing that, that goes against us when we talk about those, that, that kind of would it be easier if we didn't have that foundation already there, is that we know that loyalty is stronger with, um, with, with, with EV consumers. Yeah. That they, they tend to trust the brand that, they're currently, that they currently mm. own. And that's something now we, I mean, apart from a small pool of, of traditional Lotus consumers who trust the brand that, yeah, okay, we've got, we, it's great there, but given that the majority of our volume needs to come from Congress business, then we've got a job to do to ensure that we're not only providing the confidence mm. in the product, but also in the brand um, as well. So, And that's where direct <clears throat> consumer comes in, I, I guess, again, because you can, you can have those conversations before the buying process starts, you know, yeah, someone yeah. could come into Mayfair and, and and talk about you know how their usage pattern works for an EV, and, yeah. and they can get that confidence and go away and look at the website. Definitely, you know, sort of in reverse. Almost. Definitely, definitely. And and I, I still think that like it's, it's proven that I think most consumers still think that they do more miles than they actually yeah. do, mm-hmm. and we know that the average weekly mileage consumption if it's called that is 142 miles yeah. and I, I would say for me like no I, could, I couldn't possibly have an EV I do yeah. I do like 50,000 miles a, a year in some years but then I actually look at my my commutes and there, there's a good few chunky trips to to Europe or to back home to Ireland or whatever mm-hmm. that, that that accounts for that and actually that I look at my like even anecdotally this week alone I've been bouncing in and out of London. Mm-hmm. So a 370-mile range yeah. EV would be plenty sufficient yeah, to yeah, go yeah. from Surrey into London. So. Yeah, definitely. I find it with mine. I've got a, a Polestar 2. It's kind of real-world real 250-370-mile real range. I find that sometimes I don't charge it for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm just going to the station and back and going to the office and back, fine. And then other weeks, yeah, you sort of do longer, longer journeys. And, and that is a big learning. But that's the thing you have to live with. You can't tell people that. So all the conversations I have with my friend, I couldn't possibly have an EV. Yeah. One time a year I have to do this long drive. Okay, but, but think about this. No, 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 couldn't possibly. And then it's the the being in it for a, yeah. for a week or a month that someone goes, oh, actually, this is, this is kind of... All, well, right. I'm, the, I'm the same as you. I've got, a, I've got an electric car at the moment that I've had for a couple of weeks. I'm spending a few months in it. And it's got a, a real world range of, let's say, 240, 250. Mm-hmm. And someone said to me the other day, well, how are you surviving? You live in a flat in London. You've got no <laughs> charger, blah, blah, blah. I was like, well, you know, there's chargers at the office. Uh, there's a lamppost around the corner I can use if I really need to. But to be honest, I do 100 miles a week. And like Chris, you know, I might go two weeks. And people have this preconception in their head and they get all invested in this mindset. But it doesn't really apply yeah, to yeah, It doesn't absolutely. apply to them. And, 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 when you, and when you actually are driving an EV, that you then realise how, how available... The, the, mm. Even the um, the charging infrastructure is um, outside of your 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 home or your place of work, yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, if you just look in most petrol stations now, there's there's a bolt-on bank of yeah. EV chargers, yeah. and you only have to go to any services now. You see, I remember as I said back when I was very first on that journey of launching EVs uh, over a decade ago. And you would you were you were squabbling for that one EV charger at your the M40 Oxford yeah. services, and you were waiting there for an hour for that person to leave. Mm-hmm. And there was an orderly queue, and then you get onto it, and, and look, there's still not enough. That's no, the harsh reality. Yeah. That the the, the the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure, does need to improve, mm-hmm. um, for sure. But the, the, for the for the majority of consumers that are doing that average 140 miles a week. You, when you've got a product, yeah. as I said, that has 
a real life average range of still north of 300 miles is more than sufficient. And quick charging as well, isn't it? The um, yeah. 800 volt. Absolutely. And sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah, cool. Um, before, before we uh, sort of start um, wrapping up and bringing to a close, just while you're talking about living with electric cars, we, over the past nine episodes, have been talking a lot about different ownership models, different ways of having a car, yeah. basically usership, subscription, sharing. How does that come into the Lotus roadmap? Are you, are you sort of catering, thinking about these different types of ways that people want to have a car in their driveway? Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because um, you only have to look at my (laughs) previous experience to see that I I, I was responsible for launching a subscription service in the UK Mm -hmm. for a large Swedish manufacturer. Mm -hmm. And and that was a massive success, a huge success. And now it remains a a cornerstone of uh, a profit and volume driver for that business in the UK and and, and across several markets in, in Europe. For ourselves, for 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 Lotus, um, I, we did also see quite a bit of abuse from said scheme mm-hmm. at uh, said manufacturer that I came from, uh, and by abuse I mean consumers that are then not taking it for because it's the it's the ability to um, to if my financial circumstances change or because I like changing my cars often and. I want a new car every 12 months, 18 months, two years. So I like that flexibility. But by abuse, I mean that it's cheaper to take that car than it is to um, buy that car on a subscription. Mm -hmm. Us then register the car, give it to a customer as a brand new car, and then just to use it for their monthly trip or their two-week holiday to Cornwall because it's actually it's it's relatively cost effective versus renting that yeah. car oh, from a okay. from a major uh, daily rental company. Yeah, so, so I think we that's something that is at the forefront of my mind when we start talking about nine hundred brake horsepower, not to sixty and two point nine second uh, products. Mm-hmm. That actually wouldn't that make a lovely wedding car and yeah, uh, yeah, a lovely yeah. uh, car for the weekend? And you look at the daily cost to rent a supercar in, yeah. in London. You're looking at four figures. And you look at the price to to buy one of our cars and say contract hire, it's 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 broadly in line with. So yeah. then all of a sudden we we what's worrying me about doing and rolling out tomorrow here is that we would see that abuse as well. Yeah. And you don't want to put restrictions on 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 that subscription service because then all of a sudden you 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 then it kind of undoes all the the greatness that you buy a subscription for mm. for that flexibility yeah, yeah. for that consumer group who are just looking at it genuinely because they like flexibility of changing their car 18 months mm-hmm. two years or whatever so i'm not saying it's out of the question i would say it's certainly out of the question in doing it for new cars mm-hmm. for, for, for yeah, us yeah. um but because because you lose the vat and the and the depreciation on day one but the but certainly for used cars, it's something that we'll probably explore at some point in the future. But we just need to be very careful how we how we manage sure, that. Yeah. And then we look at all the other um, uh, finance products in the UK, and we absolutely need a strong offering there. Mm-hmm. I think seventy percent of 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 EVs now in the in the UK are sold on contract hire, yeah. and the majority of those are business contract hire because of it's, some of the tax benefits so, that you so, get so, with yeah, buying yeah. an EV. So mm-hmm. having a strong co- contract hire offering and a strong business contract hire offering is absolutely valuable yeah. for us to yeah definitely. And there's a bit of a blur. We, we've talked about it a lot with a number of guests about the kind of blurring lines between you. Know, we're quite heavily involved in that subscription space and. 
but also looking at leasing as a blurring line between them. You Definitely. can give flexibility in a lease type product in the same way as you can have a subscription product, which is essentially a, a longer term rental situation. So, and those all apply when we talk about it loads about the, the, the different things to different people, different user groups for different OEMs or different brands kind of fits dif- different models and definitely having a kind of you know 30 day rolling on a you know, 100,000 plus vehicle it just probably doesn't work but no. in some kind of you know maybe a flexible leasing type product where customers aren't necessarily committing for 24 plus plus months could could fit nicely the thing for us that we've we found a lot is a, it's helpful for the ev transition yeah again yeah, particularly when you've got absolutely. that is because you get people that will just go yeah for, and I, I take my personal journey with it you know i went into our ionic 5 temporarily i was waiting for my polestar i didn't go and see either of those in a showroom because i went i've got it on subscription so yeah. Yeah. I know that if I don't get on with it and I get it, maybe I have to keep it for a few months and then I can switch it out. You kind of don't have that commitment, whereas you're committing for two years, three years. You've got to go, can I get the dog in this? Can I get the yeah. kid? And what if in the next yeah. time I have another kid? And you have to make these assessments. That, that, was, one of the, that was one of the real huge levers um, for us at the previous brand that I worked for when we had that subscription offering because what it allowed, exactly as you say, the, the transition to full electric uh, is is daunting for some mm. and actually if you know that if you don't get along with the car you can hand it back mm. that's a huge plus point and uh and we saw that the the mix of bev mm. was much higher than the mix of of mm. vice yeah. Yeah, yeah. um for that exact reason um one thing that i think as well we talk about online sales is that if you know that you can you can um you can you can quite freely hand the car back if you did drive it and you thought wow this is not for me mm. That gives you then the confidence to yeah. click on click mm. by without having test driven yeah, the car. Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas if you're committing to it for three three years, four years, it's a much bigger it's a much bigger commitment. Yeah. Well, one thing I think though that, that was, we're talking about here the duration of the the contract as one of the big selling points mm. on the subscription, but there is another as well, which mm. was the the this all inclusive nature yeah. or, or the ability to be able to bundle products. And I think that's still very much. Um, something that I'd, I'd be, uh, I'd want to pursue quite quickly mm. with with our product portfolio, that where where we're selling these these very expensive cars to consumers that are probably like me, very time poor. Mm. The thought of then having to um, get my car serviced and, um, and and have to take it to a retailer and and all, and all of that, I think yeah, that's yeah, that's something that that is um, is is a bit of a headache that you just don't need when you are time poor, and, and that's something that we're looking at doing as well is is is, is making sure that. <clears throat> Especially for female consumer groups, that's what yeah. we saw with our research: is that yeah. female consumer groups are definitely more interested in having a, a, an all-inclusive product. Mm-hmm. So I think to 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 um, to have something where we could bundle more um, is something that's very yeah. high on our yeah. agenda. And charging as well, could that be part of? Yeah, the- yeah, for sure. It's it, it's a difficult one. The charge, charge charging is something that is one of the, the learnings I have from 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 my experience that there is a there's a huge perception rightly or wrongly from consumers in the uk especially um, that doesn't exist quite so much in other markets but certainly in the uk that when you buy a uh, a, an electric car that it's also the manufacturer that you're buying that car from's responsibility to support you with the charging Mm -hmm. of that car whether it be home charging whether it be um charging when you're out and about and and it's and it's like a perception that if you just put that mindset into buying an ice car, be like going now buying a three and a half liter V6 Amira, and then coming to to us to say, 
uh, can you please make sure that you give me a fuel card <laughs> and I want to make sure that you, you, you've, you've clearly identified the locality of the nearest fuel stations to me. And, and that's yeah. something that I think that's when we talk about that, that mindset shift now and, and us having to work with those consumers. Mm-hmm. Just that, that mindset, it's not, it's not a wrong thing. It's, as I said, it's, 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 it's just something that we need to, to work with. So having a, a, a charging card or certainly a strong home charging um, wall box offer, etc. And, and supporting customers with that is something that's is our responsibility because consumers are asking for it. Mm-hmm. And, and that for me is really, if I look at all the roles I've had, I think it, it's we we will move and react to what consumers' preferences in buying, whether that be online, whether that be EV, whether that be buying with a home channel, whatever mm-hmm. it is, we need to just to facilitate that and support mm-hmm. that. That's the key to our success to to, to grow is, yeah. is listening to our consumers. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, we could ca- as always, we could probably carry on for another five yeah, exactly. minutes. Yeah. And genuinely in one take as well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Nice. Really yeah, yeah. <laughs> Connor, thank you very much for coming in and joining us for the last episode in the series, which yeah, is a, a landmark moment. We've made it all the way through without expiring in the stifling <laughs> yeah. podcast studio. Um, but thank you very much for coming down and uh, and giving us a bit of insight into Lotus's future. Thank you, Chris, yeah, yeah. for uh, coming all the way in again. Yeah, yeah. And thank you very much for watching and listening. We'll, uh, we'll see you again soon, I hope. Thank you very much. Goodbye.